0: uh okay so you are on Andrew awesome thank you Charlie you flatter me um (laughs) uh you you've you're such a fountain of wisdom I think in our chemsex group um just with uh significant sobriety and um you know just a a lot to share and and I know we all appreciate you for it and thank you for asking me to do this again I've I've never done this um it's speaking for a sustained period of time kind of makes me nervous, but I think this is wonderful practice. Um, So some goals with that practice today for me will be kind of speaking at a slow rate. I tend to ramble and increase speed um, when I am nervous. I'm going to try and have an awareness of how often I'm saying, um, um, is one of my comfort words uh, to fill dead space because the silence is terrifying um and this is written oh, there you go um and <laughs> this is really about curiosity over fear uh my therapist said something that really stuck with me one time that that fear and curiosity cannot uh occur at the same time that that we must set aside fear in order to be curious about something and so, yeah, this is that. Um, so I thank you for the practice. I, I've i heard one Irish dialect or accent so far. It seems to be a lot of Americans. I I really just wanted to convey my deep love for Martin McDonough. Um, I uh, wrote a uh, research paper on him in uh, high school on his body of work and, and his films are really wonderful um, And so he's sort of my (laughs) only window into Ireland. Um, And yeah, uh, Charlie seems to have ignited an interest in the whole chemsex phenomenon amongst everyone who comes to this meeting, which um, I mostly know through the lens of gay men and extreme sexual behavior. However, this is a growing phenomenon. It is not exclusive to gay men. It's really um, occurring amongst a lot of categories of people and it's extending beyond really hard drugs like meth it's uh, even the prescription stimulants like Adderall and Vyvanse I think are really fueling some concern around them um, paired with sexual behavior so uh, thank you for expressing an interest it sometimes feels like a little niche drug pairing interest but I think it's a very um, prevalent one and so yeah I'll kind of walk you through my story towards addiction touching on some details within childhood and early adolescence that I think are uh relevant um so I kind of set the scene I grew up in Memphis Tennessee it's a mid-sized city in the bible belt of the American south I think I see a lot of American um towns and people's names on here so you're probably familiar with Memphis it's the birthplace of Elvis if you watched the Baz Luhrmann um biopic that was just released um and then Memphis is a funny city it's more liberal than other parts of Tennessee but it's still quite conservative especially the the part that I grew up in and so Yeah, I I had kind of a typical suburban American childhood, mother and father present in the home, still married, um, two siblings, older sister, younger brother, uh, really a a pretty loving childhood. Uh, There there was some pain tangled up in there, which I'll kind of get to. I was raised Catholic. This was um, true of everyone I kind of went to school with. It was a private Catholic school, and so we were all raised Catholic. Um, and I I guess I was a little more Catholic than others. I was an altar boy, um, which looking back, I mean, it was it, it gave me a sense of purpose. There was a there's kind of a theatricality to it that I really enjoyed. They, you know, the Catholic Church, they wear these costumes and uh there's a lot of singing and and uh I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Um and as we know with the Catholic Church, it's not at the forefront of sexual education. <laughs> um, and so I think a lack of sex education really um, also contributed to how the rest of my uh, life kind of unfolded. I was a very effeminate boy. Um, I gravitated towards Barbies, uh, still do. I really admire dolls of all sorts. Um, I really enjoyed brushing their hair, uh, uh, creating uh relational aggression amongst them if you have an empty tissue box you can make a nice hot tub that can fit about two barbies um if you need to take that tip somewhere um i would dress up in my sister's dresses i um would also put on pajama pants around my head and wear them as long hair i uh i exhibited just a lot of very effeminate behavior which is not atypical for a lot of young gay boys um this was this made my parents very uncomfortable I think on my mom's side there was some oh he'll grow out of it on my dad's side there was some deep concern um, I have a very powerful visual memory of my dad returning home earlier than expected he would always get home from work at about like four thirty p.m and so I knew to kind of be done with playing with the Barbies around that time one time he came home early and you know, our, our memories are funny. They, they've they evolved to remember heightened states of emotion. And so I have a very early memory of deep shame um, when he re- came home early and there was this look of disapproval on his face. Um, I, I have very few of those early visual memories, but that is one of them. And, and you know, you kind of internalize that. Um I had a, I had an early sexual awakening. I was, I was very young, so like too young to really understand the concept of human sexuality. But uh, uh, there was we had a VHS tape of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats, uh, and if anyone is familiar with this, it's a terrible musical, in my opinion. But um, if anyone is familiar with the Rum Tum Tugger number, it was a, a man in a in a skin tight uh, cat suit, kind of gyrating around, and I I didn't know what I liked about it, but I knew I liked it um and so as far as more sort of like effeminate behavior out of me i was a very artistic child i did both watercolor and acrylic painting i i had some kind of innate skill with it and began to practice it um there was in the culture i grew up in it was very you know boys do boy things there was a lot of pressure to be both good at sports and enjoy sports, both of which I had no interest in. And um, well, and this was an early example of kind of inconsistent messaging from my mom. You know, I, she, she loved the artistic expression. She loved the painting. She would hang them around the house. However, there were other forms of it that uh, she kind of disapproved of a little bit more. Um I had an early experience with pornography, you know, the uh, w- which is really uh, my chemsex experience. It's the combination of pornography and math. So, an early experience with pornography, I must have been 9 or 10 years old. Um I think the current statistic with this is the average age that young boys first view pornography is 8 years old, which just kind of fills me with sadness to think about that is so young to be exposed to probably, you know, uh, kind of imagery that's really startling. Um, I quickly, I, it was a buddy of mine sort of showed us, he was like, you guys know Google image search, you can type in boobs into that. And it, it shows you boobs. And I was like, okay, interesting. I'm not terribly interested in the, in that, but I quickly discovered that (laughs) there were categories on some of these sites, um, that of orient you towards, uh, you know, homosexual content. And so I gravitated towards that and was absolutely mesmerized. Um, And of course, there was complete secrecy, which would be sort of a theme throughout my sexual self um, as I grew up. So entering the teenage years, um, I was a big theater kid. I'm absolutely obsessed with theater, still am. Uh, it it created a a wonderful sense of belonging in high school. I don't know what I would have done without it. Whenever there's some kid who's in high school who doesn't really have a sense of community, I always recommend theater. Um, Every weirdo is welcome. And the beautiful thing about theater is that everyone's working towards a larger goal. And each role is very important. If your one job is to pull the curtain open at the beginning of the show, guess what? The show doesn't start without you. So... Uh, I think it's just great for that reason. And we were uh, it, we were a very sober high school crowd. Like there, there wasn't experimentation with drugs uh, amongst my cohort in high school. Uh, other kids were experimenting with drinking and stuff, but I think we had a blast sober. So I was really grateful for that. Um, really great group of friends I went through high school with. Uh, I gravitated towards creative writing. I uh, We had an excellent English department at my high school, one that really gave valuable feedback, and, and a few professor professors, um, these were teachers, you don't call high school teachers, professors, um, a few teachers were really encouraging of my writing, and it kind of inspired me to keep practicing. I read through David Sedaris's entire body of work in high school, which... Um, which was just so important because all the novels we were assigned were these, you know, these prolific Southern writers who would describe the smell of the wind in Georgia. And I I I I value that writing. It's beautiful writing. I didn't um it wasn't that interesting to me. David Sedaris kind of taught me the, the beauty of nonfiction writing and humor writing and and how um even the most mundane of occurrences can be turned into beautiful writing. And so this has been something I still practice. Uh, Early experiences with shame, specifically from my mother, there was another instance of getting caught looking at porn. Um, it's, It's a kind of a funny story. She, we had one family computer and, I thought I had figured out how to properly delete the browser history when I was probably eleven or twelve. She, <laughs> she, she went to look up something about like Disney. So to type in Disney, whatever, and it autofilled to deep throat Men. Um, and she, <laughs> she, she immediately called my name, <laughs> and uh, and and I. I watched her cry at the computer. It was a really difficult experience for me. Um just because I was already so deeply full of shame and she was launched into absolutely freaking out about it. And the 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 real pain of that is that it was never fully addressed. Uh, just this this shame bubbled up in me and then just moved on, which is sort of how <clears throat> my family has always operated and how a lot of families I know have always operated when something difficult happens, it's just don't talk about it. We'll move on. We'll act like it, it didn't happen. And, um, that's, that's our coping skill. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad to, uh, glad to have kind of shaken that approach to difficult experiences. I also got caught playing around in makeup. Um, some part of it was probably insecurity about teenage acne, but another part of it was just a love of the the, the feminine painting on a face. I, I was kind of fascinated by it. And I would secretly kind of play around in makeup. And I think there was like a little bit of foundation on my face that I stole from my sister and my mom saw it. And again, sort of looked at me with this look of almost disgust that was kind of seared into my memory. And she said something like, you know, we're not going to tell your father. He can't know. And again, just proceed. Don't talk about it. That's kind of how we operated. Um, I don't think she minded an effeminate son. I think she enjoyed someone in the kitchen with her uh, who, who would help her kind of decorate for the holidays. But one thing that I think my mom really struggled with was the thought of me being gay, you know, men having sex with men. This was where she kind of drew the line in her mind and that's just because she grew up in a very small city in Tennessee in a very religious community um so yeah those early experiences with my mom really sat with me and I think fed what what again later kind of occurred throughout my 20s uh I developed a pornography habits throughout high school that was honestly pretty gentle, nothing of real concern. I think another statistic is like the average amount of time spent on something like Pornhub is seven minutes, you know, just enough to kind of become aroused, bust a nut and log off. Um, And so my early experiences with porn weren't, weren't of that much concern to me. I had an active sexual imagination outside of pornography, which is something that pornography kind of quickly takes over. You, you, you find yourself unable to become aroused without the visual stimulation. Uh, my fantasies were quite romantic, (laughs) which, um, which became true later in life. But in, in high school, I used to, I knew which classes were kind of unimportant and that I could mentally tune out of, and I would engage in very vivid romantic fantasy, um, There was some shame for their gayness. You know, I was really good at compartmentalizing that part of my life. You know, that, that was something that I could throw to the back of my mind and say, Oh, don't think about it too closely right now. Um, and that would sort of come to haunt me later on. I had, uh, early sexual experiences were not healthy. I hopped on, um, There are a lot of there are a lot of sex finding websites across the board, but gay men are especially good at organizing these. And I discovered them at a young age. Um, I was sixteen when I first had uh, an anonymous encounter with what were often middle aged men. Some of them were married to women. Um, uh, The the, this is kind of the population that congregates on them. Is is some are deeply closeted. Some are just Sort of lonely gay men. But anyway, I I these were my early sexual experiences. And it was strange because I was um sort of basking in the bliss of gay sex. It was that part was really wonderful. However, this this was a completely secret sexual self. No one knew about this. There wasn't um th- there was no intimacy in these encounters, only intensity, and, and I kind of learned the ease with which you can find sexual partners, especially as a gay man on the internet. And um, those habits became really difficult to break. Um, and so also this was kind of the murky water between excitement and fear, right? That line is so thin and and this really played to that. Um, it made you know, kind of safe, intimate sexual encounters later in life, pretty uninteresting. Again, it was that pattern that I had to break of uh, what do I do when, when a really nice guy who I enjoy talking to just wants me to spend the night and and wants to cuddle that, that terrified me, um, deep fear of intimacy. And um, this also set the stage for dehumanization in my sexual life that that was really a theme is um you know well these aren't complete complex human beings who are uh, uh worthy of respect and kindness these are just men that you meet on the internet for very brief sexual encounters and um again those patterns i kind of had to break uh, i was desperate after high school to get out of the South. Um, I hopped up to a uh, college in Chicago. I went to a pro a small arts school for, um, television production. I, I consumed a lot of TV. I got into, um, television writing and, um, Chicago was such a culture shock because, uh, I arrived there and being gay was not only accepted and normal, but it was like, cool. It was almost lame to be straight. And, um, Uh, so that was, that rocked my world because I came from this very conservative environment where being gay, oof, that was a real issue. You know, that's something that you might want to hold on to for fear of stigma, um, or ostracization and Chicago was different. Um, you know, I began drinking here and my drinking was never really problematic. You know, it was college kind of party drinking It it never got out of hand. However, I discovered Adderall. You know, stimulants were really uh, what attracted me. And so Adderall kind of appeared in a few different ways. First, it was a study drug. I remember the first time I took it, it was their slow-release Adderall and fast-release Adderall. And this was fast-release Adderall, which, like, launches you into the euphoria pretty quickly. I took it because I had to finish up a paper that I had procrastinated on. Next thing I knew, I was pacing around my apartment, getting all these short story ideas. I, w- I had like a notepad next to me, just jotting everything down. I felt like a genius, and it kind of filled me with this euphoric feeling of like this is perfect. I've never felt this good before. And so, the, the you know the the central nervous system depressants like alcohol and marijuana they were their own thing. They were enjoyable. I really love the stimulants and. Um, And I would later become equated with the the most powerful stimulant out there, methamphetamine. So I I also used Adderall as a party drug. We would kind of like snort it in the bathroom at parties um, and uh, just to kind of stay up with the drinking. Um, And then I discovered it alone with pornography, which is really the 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 danger with it was discovering the way it fueled the sexual mind uh you You could not only spend like I think the one of the first time I paired it with pornography. I spent six hours viewing porn and there was just this hyper focus the the sexual mind is completely uninhibited and um and so i I learned that pretty pretty young. Um the sexual patterns continued in college, a deep fear of intimacy, uh, a deep fear of rejection. I hurt a lot of really nice guys that could have been really good for me, <laughs> but I was so terrified of um I was so used to compartmentalizing, you know, the sexual parts of myself that I didn't know how to fully integrate those into um, the rest of my life. And so I would run, you know, at at the nearest sign of like, I think I actually care about this guy. I would run. And, um, also while I was in Chicago, I'm really grateful. I actually left that city when I did, because this is where I began getting curious about math. I noticed, um, gay men on a lot of sex apps, sprinkle capital T's and specific emojis to signal their meth use. And it was so ubiquitous that I was becoming, curious about it you know i i knew um i knew based off like the fear-mongering campaigns of my youth you know the meth mouth and and this really deteriorates people's health and appearance and, and ruins their lives but that's sort of the danger about its place as a sexual enhancement drag is it takes sometimes it takes a while for those physical deteriorations to occur and you begin to fall under the illusion that huh maybe this drug is something that one can do in moderation. Maybe it's more manageable than I thought. And so the seeds for that were kind of planted when I was in school in Chicago. So I was sort of living a double life in Chicago. I was out with my friends. I um, I felt very comfortable. However, I just didn't share that part of myself back home. And That was bubbling up. It kind of erupted in severe depression. Um, I came out to my parents. uh, There was a tepid response from them. I think it was sort of obvious that (laughs) I was gay. Um, it, It shouldn't have come as a shock to them. And so in revealing it to them, there was just this kind of begrudging we always knew this was coming. We were kind of hoping and praying that I just had a very effeminate straight son who's super into musical theater and has never had a girlfriend, you know, like (laughs) it's, it's sort of absurd thinking about it now, but um, that experience of coming out to them was really difficult. It actually launched me into such a severe depression that I, I decided to move back to Memphis, which I, I know sort of seems strange you know you're you're more comfortable with your friends in chicago but um the the self-loathing bled into absolutely every area of my life and one of those was that um i i i needed to get my head out of, out of the clouds with something like a creative career and um move back to memphis and so i did that uh, i not maybe there was some sense of comfort in doing that maybe um Chicago just felt really daunting, but it was it was a whole tornado of um really difficult emotions that I was dealing with um and and coming out was especially difficult because oh, I have never wanted to hurt my mother as much as when she said this um she said to me she she was like, Why did you feel like you couldn't tell us that you were gay and it was this <sighs> she knew it was bullshit. (laughs) She, she, um, I think she kind of had to do that in her mind to protect herself from, from really confronting the fact that she didn't create a very welcoming space in, um, my childhood for me to come out. And, you know, the responsibility they were sort of implying fell on me, the child going through all these very difficult emotions to find, I, I find a way to come out to them. You know, I, my dad, um, my dad sort of always implied like you should have just come out earlier in high school. You could have avoided all this pain. And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess, I guess all that fell on me. Um, And coming out was also really difficult because it felt like all my family was protecting my parents from feeling like they had done something wrong. I think because I was in such a dark place, I was i was I, th- th- it was implied that i was sort of creating that within them and and so people kind of rushed around them to make them you know assure them no no you didn't do anything wrong in raising andrew he's just got to go through this and it was really difficult cuz no one really asked how i was feeling throughout that process it was it was sort of assumed he'll figure it out in fact it was sort of gently suggested to me hurry up and start hurry up and get over this because you're you're creating a lot of um, guilt in your parents. And so I kind of felt like I just needed to pick myself up and and be fine with. Um, well, really, again, kind of just brush off all that shame like we did um, through growing up. And so the depression worsened. I, I used to describe myself with three words that I would use on an endless loop, those were pathetic, worthless, and undeserving. I would just marinate in these thoughts for hours. Um, it, it bled into every area of my life. It was total self-loathing. I had never experienced it before. It, it, um, I don't know if anyone's done, um, CBT, but one of uh, a really powerful aspect of that. It was, it was pure negative filtering it it was pure dichotomous thinking it it was um i i really attached to this idea that um i I was just a, a lost cause and and um really unworthy of love i think that was a huge theme throughout a lot of those feelings uh jacqueline novak is a comedian at a New York, and she has a really funny line about depression. You know sometimes the depression stems from a specific event, obviously, the circumstances of my childhood were kind of tangled up in that, but um she says there's something sort of devastating with depression uh in realizing that you weren't exactly abused, you know there wasn't this one specific event that kind of led to this, and that's what i felt i i I spent so long wondering what happened why did this creep into every area of my life i understand in the in the sexual orientation realm but um the only way i know how to describe this depression is that i was reckoning with my complexity as a human being my my mind wasn't ready to do that and it all kind of poured into the forefront in a way that was um kind of asking me to integrate every area of my life and so I tried every antidepressant under the sun, um, but ultimately I found that methamphetamine was the best medicine for this emotional pain. It's uh, David Fawcett, uh, who I think spoke here recently, um, is very wise to note that, yes, this drug is often used as a sexual enhancement drug, but really I think it takes hold in people because it's a great emotional painkiller. And so... I was in my early 20s. I think it was 21 the first time I tried meth. Um, so my my sexual orientation had now been integrated into my life, but my sexual behavior was still very compartmentalized. It was still this very secretive thing. Um, I first kind of explored my curiosity with it with this guy named Chris. I found this guy with a capital T in his profile on Grinder. I had a phone call with him actually beforehand, and I said, look, look, I know... I know meth is one of these very powerful drugs, but everyone seems to be using it. So tell me about it. And um, he said something to me like, you know, you should really use this with me for the first time because other guys might take advantage of you, but um, but I won't. And and he was actually right. <laughs> uh, he, it, it's a very dangerous thing, this drug, because it's um, it really eliminates shame and it like turns off those parts of our brain that like empathize with people <laughs> and and really care. Um and so uh he was right and he was actually true to his word. He he just kind of introduced the drug to me. We snorted it. Um on the come up I was like, oh you know this is really just Adderall. And then I got stronger. I was like, oh it's Adderall but like times 10. Um and so that was my first experience with the drug. There was actually kind of a long period of time. Um between my first use and my second use. I, I found the drug interesting the way, it, especially it fueled pornography. I was familiar with, with Adderall. Um, but there, but there was a, a few months between my first and second use again with this guy. And then um, another couple of months went by. So this was very sporadic use initially um, enough to just not be concerned about it. And again, to fall under that illusion that perhaps these drugs are more manageable than we thought. Um my second experience was with a group of random people tweaking in a hotel room, um, which is sort of a very uh, common image amongst people um, using these kind of drugs. And so I had th- this guy named Kevin, he explained to me, he goes, here's how to be careful not to get addicted. You um you know, you're very scheduled with your use. You you have the meth. They also used um, GHB, gamma hydroxybutyrate. It's a commonly used as a date rape drug, but when paired with meth, it's um, it, it kind of fills people with this more warm, fuzzy, loving feeling. So he said that you got to get your benzos so that when you have to be at work on Monday, you can take one of those to come down. Uh, take the emodium so you can bottom like a rock star. Uh, he got uh, candy to get the very chemical taste out of his mouth. Um, all, he set an alarm on his phone for every 30 minutes to drink water because on amphetamines, you know, you're not receiving your your body's normal signal to eat food and drink water. So he, I was really startled by this. I was like, wow, these are professional meth users and I'm learning a lot. <laughs> um, and so uh. Again, I'm I'm walking away with this illusion that, huh, maybe these drugs are pretty manageable. Um, and I sat down with this guy who ended up being a dealer. He was this British guy with absolutely no top teeth. And um he explained to me that uh he, he walked me through Grindr, our local Grindr scene, and he showed me everyone who uses, which was far more men than who had capital T's in their profile to kind of signal their use. So this was my first insight into just how widespread this phenomenon is. I think, especially as gay men, we witness it. It feels kind of like, like this kind of niche thing, but I, I'm really concerned about its prevalence amongst gay men, and I think it's far more widespread than we think. Um, So then I discovered the terrible combination of meth and Zoom. I'm not sure if anyone is familiar with one little phenomenon within the um, Chemsex world, and that is these Zoom rooms where people congregate exactly like this one. And um, everyone's very high. There's typically some like techno house music playing, um, lots of like porn being projected everywhere. It's it's visual stimulation unlike anything I'd ever seen. I would say it's like porn, but live, you know, you can interact with everyone and, and share sexual interests. Um, there's this twisted sense of camaraderie in this world. One thing that's really true about stimulants is it's very easy to make friends on these drugs because, again, it kind of eliminates shame. It, it, um, you're kind of filled with this sense of invinci- invincibility, and so the, what might be at play as far as uh, uh keeping you from really opening up and and becoming vulnerable with someone that's eliminated. In fact, um in these environments, I, I found that people were shockingly vulnerable. They would share very difficult childhood experiences, uh, uh, deep buckets of childhood sexual abuse I found in amongst men who use these drugs. And and people were very willing to share that. Again, it, it was that drug that sort of disinhibited them enough to share that and i would do the same I, I would share details of my life with these people and you form these friendships and friendship is great friendship fueled by meth is a tricky thing <laughs> and, 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 you know it was uh, it was really dangerous it became its own thing and so um i was always really nervous too that because this is such a worldwide phenomenon um i was always really nervous i was always at risk of like hopping on a flight to go visit one of these people when you're when you're kind of twisted on the drug. Um, and so ultimately my use was picking up. It was going from that very occasional, you know, oh no, I'm in school and I'm working. I can't use this very often, to I think it picked up to like binging every two weeks or something. Um, and so my drug use was picking up. Uh and ultimately I it got so bad that I dropped out of school for a second time. I had re-enrolled in the University of Memphis and um I had stopped attending classes. It was getting really bad. I was still able to keep my drug use very secretive, but I decided that I should cool it. Um, And so uh, six months go by. I'm not really using any drugs. Um, Next, I kind of get back into it uh, after a period of abstinence with meth and porn. This felt a little safer because I was very concerned about STIs. Um, and, and I didn't want to have more of the human to human sex. Um, the porn kind of offered a sense of control, you know, when you have sex with another human, it's, it's more of this negotiation of sexual interests. You know, what are you into? What am I into? We can kind of marry those, the two of those, but with the porn, you, you, the porn viewer get to maintain total control over, um, what you're viewing. And so I liked that aspect of it. Um, my imagination soared again with a combination of these two things. Um. And what was really sad was there was a lot lot of the fantasy I engaged with was, again, often pretty romantic. There was this warm, euphoric, loving feeling I associated with the drug that was really at the core of the addiction. And again, with the endless novelty that porn provides, um, I made my therapist become very aware of the chemsex phenomenon just because I was like, I need your help getting... Through this, and one thing he read about it, he said, What, what I'm reading about this is that the, the experience for most men with this drug tends to deteriorate. You know, at the beginning, the sex is great, and then it begins to deteriorate. And I said, Oof, I think that's true of the sex, but I, that hasn't been true of the porn. Um, it, it's because of the endless novelty, I could always go down some different rabbit hole. And so this is kind of where I settled, and the consequences that I began to experience uh launched me into addressing it uh poor job performance i uh while I wasn't in school, I was working two jobs I managed a local Thai restaurant and I worked in the morning at a, a dog lodging place so i was i was i was and I had very cheap rent i was honestly making a lot of money um but my job performance was really suffering. I um, We become excellent liars as addicts. And I used every excuse under the book to call in sick to work. Um, any ailment that exists, I had it while I was secretly using drugs. And so my job performance was suffering. Um, I was suffering from erectile dysfunction, which was really sad to me. You know, stimulants really affect that part of the sexual experience. And um, I wanted to regain that, you know, I, I was caught in this hell of only being able to experience sexual arousal with, with some kind of stimulant in pornography. Um, there was an inability to deeply concentrate, you know, in, in my, throughout my teenage years, I read a book like every two weeks I read very quickly and I really loved reading. I did not touch a book (laughs) for my early throughout my early twenties. And this was one area where I was like, Oh, the drugs have really affected me because I remember I wanted to read the novel, call me by your name before the movie came out. Um, Great novel, great movie. And um, I really wanted to read it before the movie came out and I could not do it. I even remember a friend of mine, she gave me a short story she had written to give her, she wanted some feedback on it. 15 pages. 15 pages which should have taken me no more than like 30 45 minutes to read through and and crank out some notes it took me i want to say like 8 hours to read a 15 pages of material um my my brain was just really suffering and my relationships were suffering i was a completely unreliable person um i really had to uh recognize that um and also the guy that i bought from um he died he was shot in his home his life was rapidly deteriorating. And so um, that was a huge motivator for me kind of addressing the issue. And so I, I'm i trying to wrap this up. I see you got like 15 minutes left. Um, but as far as addressing the issue, um, I remember seeing David Fawcett's book, it's called Less Men and Meth on the bedside table of someone that I had used with. And so I kind of filed that away in the back of my mind of like, get that book, you got to address this. And so about that book. I marched into my therapist's office. I said, um, this is an objective third party who is bound by an ethical obligation not to tell anyone what I'm about to reveal to him. And so I explained to him that I had fallen into meth addiction. um, And he assured me (laughs) that he is neither an addiction specialist nor knowledgeable in sexual counseling, but I felt very comfortable talking to him. Um, He actually referred me to an ASECT certified therapist, which is a branch of sexual counseling here in America that really doesn't see any value in the addiction model applied to sexual behavior. Um, Rob, my therapist, he didn't know that, but um, I met with her and she assumed that my desire to abstain from pornography was purely due to shame. Um, We we really disagreed about this. I I kind of explained to her... (laughs) Uh, cause she was very unfamiliar with the chemsex phenomenon. I said, I, you know, I just really disagree with you. I, I think, um, I think abstaining from porn is a really wise goal, especially in those early months of recovery. Um, and so I was kind of left to my own devices on, on the sexual front for a while. Um, just kind of assured that if I really keep the sexual behavior under control, I could get it. Um, thank you, Charlie. Um, uh, Next, I dive into 12-step programs. Um, There was some initial shame, the kind of language I think I used uh, with my therapist as he was really trying to convince me to go to these was I'm going to have to crawl into one of these meetings, which really revealed a lot um, about what I thought about them. I think I was fearful of knowing someone in one of these rooms. We had a little virtual CMA meeting um, here in Memphis, and I really wanted to go to CMA. I wanted something that, um, and this is Crystal Meth Anonymous, I wanted something that, uh, not the Country Music Awards, different thing, Um, but CMA, uh, I wanted something that, where I could really speak specifically to the meth use. Just again, my, my alcohol use, um, you know, I I don't drink alcohol. I have no interest in drinking alcohol. Um, But it was alcoholism was just really never part of my drug using experience. Um, And these were ultimately very wonderful. I made so many friends, I really think the most powerful aspect of the support group approach to addiction recovery is the fellowship. Um, I made so many friends in Europe, I, I, I just gained such a deep cultural understanding of So many different parts of the world and and how addiction um is just such a is such a widespread human thing. Um and the wonderful thing about CMA is that I think it's kind of safe to say that Crystal Meth Anonymous is about 80% gay men. Um I don't think 80% of meth users are gay men. I just think gay men sort of have this outsized um place in the in the structure of that. And and because of that because there's a lot of religious trauma surrounding um a lot of gay men's experience it was more secular than other groups and so these were really just discussions of gratitude self-love working through anger and resentment um tips for relapse prevention um this was wonderful i i i just i i would go to like five meetings in a day in, in that first year you know i i if i had the time i would uh, just soak up as much knowledge as I could from people. Um, I really took a Buddhist approach to the spiritual aspect of it, which I did with a really open mind. Um, this this kind of spiritual philosophy really jives well with um, my idea of a higher power, which for me is the divine nature of love. There, There really is this, you know, love is this immaterial thing it transcends the material world it is what unites us as human beings and it's what we have to lean into in addiction recovery and so that really guided um my idea of a higher power throughout my my 12-step process um I, I think Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning is a wonderful book that really highlights the divine nature of love um short read if you if you want um a good very meaningful read um and I found a sponsor. Um, uh, my sponsor, his name is Thomas. He was um a, a much uh older guy. He's a high school English teacher, which we really bonded over. He had also dealt with the chemsex issue, and so um I, I wanted to do the sponsorship. There was a lot of disagreement. Um, In the early days, uh, it was really important for me when working through those steps and working through the big book to be completely honest about my thoughts. I I noticed in the 12-step world, there is sometimes this, um, everyone kind of like falls into the dogma and, and sometimes you can begin to say things that you're like, do I even really mean this? Is my heart really behind this? And it was really important for me to Mean what I say and say what I mean, and that involved being very honest about parts of the big book where I was like, you know, I don't really think about addiction in this way. That this this section isn't really valuable to me. Um, I had a real dislike of prayer, you know. Uh, my my sponsor he really wanted me to get on my knees and pray this like very antiquated, very Christian sounding prayer every morning, and I did it for a week. I was like, no, I'll I'll do it. I will do it for a week and I will report to you how it makes me feel. It made me feel very silly. Um, I didn't enjoy the practice and that's fine. Um, you know, it, it's sort of like take what works and, and leave the rest and, um, it, you know, what, what works for one person isn't necessarily working for another. So, um, yeah, we, we worked for through step nine. Um, ultimately he, <laughs> there was a lot of disagreement because he just sort of wanted me to completely fall in line with um, the big book as truth and um, sort of his view of addiction. And um, I have a deep love for my sponsor. He he is really wonderful. We are now working through refuge recovery together, which is Noah Levine's sort of Buddhist approach to addiction. So we kind of meet regularly and discuss that. Um, and, yeah, it was, um, a wonderful experience. I, I learned he was actually, he had begun using again during the last few months of our work together, which kind of hurt to learn, but, um, you know, it's that this addiction is quite a beast. it It is, um, it'll creep back up on you. And so, uh, I decided to I dove into a lot of addiction and human sexuality literature there's such a wide range of thought on these topics um our knowledge of addiction is so limited like amongst neuroscientists doctors um like really everyone we're still trying to understand what's going on with addiction and so um I I was really looking at it through a neuroscience lens just because I was very aware of how it had kind of hijacked my dopamine system. Um, and, and addiction manifests itself in so much of our behavior. You know, the ex- when people kind of think they don't understand addiction, I always explain to them, um, you know, when you misplace your cell phone and we're so attached to our cell phones these days that it it kind of bubbles up this like unrest within the person like i i cannot calm down until i find my cell phone you know that um to me i'm like th- this is addiction at play it is it is your brain kind of clinging for that thing that that gives you dopamine um hits and creates a sense of comfort and so um I, yeah i just think addiction is really important to understand um we transferred our cma group from zoom to in person which i i just really preferred i i liked the you know, being able to reach across the room and and give someone a hug. Um, and so, uh, we established a local CMA group. Um, it became sparsely attended with men, most of whom got sober through AA and had again, a very devout, um, adherence to the structure and the principles of AA, which was fine. You know, I, um, I felt sort of isolated as the only one approaching it in a non-theistic way in an agnostic way. Um, You know, it's principles over personalities. I I know how to kind of navigate that space, but it was distinctly different from what I had experienced in the Zoom CMA world, just because it was very secular. I kept hearing this line a lot, which really frustrated me, Um, and it was very pointed at me (laughs) in this in-person meeting. It was... um, I also used to think I was too smart to believe in God. That's what I was told a lot by um, some of these men. And, you know, I just kind of had to smile through that. Um, To me, that is the equivalent of me saying dumb people believe in God, which is something I absolutely do not believe. You know, whatever form of spirituality you take if it is working for you great i'm not here to convince you that god doesn't exist that's nothing that any of us are sure of and um uh but but i felt this pressure to uh you know some some people really do believe and there's so much evidence that you can navigate a 12-step program in a non-theistic way and maintain your atheism but um there are some people who just really don't believe that. And I was amongst a lot of them. So ultimately I decided to step away from that meeting towards Dharma recovery uh, or recovery Dharma. I always get it backwards. Um, It is the Buddhist lens um, of addiction recovery. um, And uh, there was no more translating. This was wonderful. We had a local meeting. Uh, I still attended every Saturday morning. Um, There's no more translating through the uh, language of AA, um, and it's completely compatible with twelve-step programs. Um, it, it it sort of de-emphasizes powerlessness. Um, it sort of wants you to feel kind of empowered to take a little bit more control of your life. Um, the addict identity is not very necessary, you know. Meditation kind of took that place of prayer that I didn't really gravitate towards, and and I'm really ramping up my practice with it, and I'm finding a lot of benefits. And viewing addiction through the lens of craving that leads to suffering has been so important for me. Um, I now volunteer with a group out of London called Con- uh, Controlling Chemsex. It is a non-theistic approach to very specifically the chemsex issue. Um, it, abstinence is not the goal. Um, that's one thing where it kind of differs from other approaches. Um, if someone wants to maintain they're drinking or marijuana use or whatever, they can do that. Um, you know, you can kind of evaluate whether or not that is wise for you, but um, th- that's just sort of to engage people a little deeper. Um, there's an emphasis on individualized attention and one-on-one support. Um, complete anonymity is assured. And right now I've been speaking with Ignacio um, who kind of runs their operation in London, he's kind of confronting the fact that London can't cater to the entire world um, dealing with chemsex. And so we're trying to focus on a more local approach. I'm working with, we have Friends for Life. It's kind of an HIV awareness um, and treatment organization here in uh, Memphis. I'm I'm trying to develop kind of a chemsex care plan with them um, just to have support for people who need it um i'm currently in a creative nonfiction class where i'm developing my writing on this issue i'm really i'm really interested on the sense of denial especially amongst gay men that this is as bad as it's gotten and and that um and that it's really not a safe drug to engage in um and i am admitted to uh my state's um social work master's program to kind of further my career as a clinician you know i i i just really want to dedicate my career and as much of my brain power as i can to figuring out how to support people through this because there's just a very low success rate you know this is these are powerful drugs and especially when it comes to gay men um your your you're rubbing up against a culture that just is very sexualized. It's very difficult to disengage enough to kind of make those proper um, adjustments. And so, okay, I'll just kind of go through these pretty quickly. These are some tools that have really helped me um, that I'll share with y'all. One is humanizing your parents. You know, um, we're all just trying our damn best. And, And this has been really essential as far as, being able to develop a stronger relationship with them um understanding that you know they are an amalgamation of experiences that have um manifested and in the way that they raised me and 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 trying not to blame them too much for that despite um the pain that existed stoicism as a very action-oriented form of spirituality has been huge for me um just because it's you know it's about walking your talk. Um, it, it's about showing up in the world in the way that you sort of claim to. And so uh, there's a huge focus on what is within the realm of your control. Um, there's a lot of empowerment in that. Um, and and kind of rec- there's also humility in that and recognizing that very little is within the realm of your control, but um, understanding what is is so important. Um, I often think of this I think it's Epictetus uh, when life offers you pleasure pause <laughs> you know really consider what pleasure you want to engage in you know in, on the spectrum between pure hedonism and pure discipline i kind of sit more on the discipline side i really have to be careful with um what pleasure i engage in ryan holiday and william irvine are great writers repopularizing stoicism chloe valdry is also excellent she has a company called theory of Enchantment. Cooking has been huge for me. Um, we often think we don't have time to do it, but um, it's an investment in our health. You learn to be okay with fucking something up um, and trying again. You know, sometimes you have more ingredients to try again. Um, sometimes things are out of your control. If, if the air is too humid and you're making caramel for a dessert, um, the, just the, the circumstances might not be in your favor. Um, I'm also trying to incorporate a lot more meatless meals and and think of sustainability in regards to cooking. Uh, Yoga kind of falls into that same category of not judging yourself and understanding its progress over perfection, forces us to be present. Um, There's a quote from Bessel van der Kolk's book, um, I cannot breathe in the past or the future only now. And that deep focus on the breath is really grounding for me. I've gotten back into watercolor painting, which um, a, a good quote I have to remind myself of a lot is we are human beings, not human doings. It is very important that we kind of slow down and be present. Um, kindness is just at the core of everything. The human ego is quite the tempting beast. And so I, I just have to remind myself all the time to lead with kindness and compassion. Again, that divine nature of love kind of Pulls me through everything. Um, and then as far as sex, it's a it's a focus on emotional connection and and repeat partners. I'm someone who really believes that like sex gets better the more you have it with someone, uh, which is sort of antithetical to the way gay men have sex. Um it, it's often um wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, on to the next one. Um, and so uh that's been really important and focusing on the kind of sex where <sighs> there's the kind of sex where your partner is replaceable by practically any other person, you know, um, uh, uh it, it's, it's sort of unimportant that it's you. It's, it's more like I could replace you with anyone who fills this body type category or is into this thing as well. But I'm really focused on the sex where I've developed like an attachment to this partner. You know, it it's, it's, I kind of lead with the fact that it matters that it's you I've developed this connection to you. Um, and so, yeah, it's focusing on the improvement mindset. I mean, the mere fact that we're at this meeting means we're kind of investing in our improvement and well-being. And so I commend you for coming. Thank you for listening. Honestly, I spoke way longer than I expected to. I expected to speak way faster. Um, so thank you for listening. I feel like that was a lot. And now I know if I ever do this again, condense. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of, that's kind of it from me. Um, thank you for staying beyond the hour. If there are any questions, I'm happy to answer them.